Hi, it's Holly here, and I'd like to welcome you to the second location. This is our eighth episode on the Florida Furniture Store Murders, and today we will finish up talking about the prosecution side of the trial. At this point, I have about nine people, nine people in the whole wide world that have stuck with this. I want to thank those people because I know that the production value isn't always the highest, and maybe I seem a bit obsessed but you have endured, so thanks. I just like to think that somewhere out there in the whole world, there are nine people that agree with me. You know, at least sometimes. So guys, how about you like or subscribe to the podcast or follow it, whatever the heck they call it. I mean, you have listened to me talk about this single case for over six hours. I feel like we've gotten pretty close. So let's make it official. So start following. Okay, back to the trial. The state calls to the stand an FBI fingerprint expert. Ruby Lee Ross. Now she testified about finding a palm print that matched Tommy's on a paper bag that contained bullets, empty cartridges, and two gun boxes. And this paper bag was found inside a cabinet in the store's back room. The bag itself was double bagged, paper bag inside paper bag style, but the expert could not recall was the inner bag or the outer bag that held the palm print. And right there, Already, I think it's shoddy because I think you, I think you write down, you note everything, you know which bag you're dealing with when you're testing for things. I don't think there's any excuse for not knowing which bag the print was on. Also, I don't know if it's a very big deal, but it goes to workmanship. You know how how good a job people are doing in general. Level of sloppiness. You're sloppy. You have two identical items and you can't differentiate between them in the lab. That's not good. Okay, the expert also testified that a fingerprint on a bag like this could last on the bag for up to 10 months. So it's impossible to tell when the print was put on the bag. And keep in mind, that bag could have been a bag that was in the store, you know, at any point, and the bullets and such were just placed in the bag to set the scene to implicate Tommy as a murderer. Somebody that wanted to frame him could have just taken a paper bag that existed in the store and threw some random crap in it, bullets, cartridges, empty gun boxes, to make it... I don't know how that makes him look guilty, to be honest with you. Um, honestly, I don't even see why this is a big deal because we know that they had multiple guns in the store because there were the, um, ski mask bandits were in the Orlando area robbing places. So, and they often had a lot of cash because when Tommy would go do the driving around for people that made, collect payments from people that made payments on furniture, a lot of times people made payments in cash back then. So their store always had a lot of cash. So they had a lot of guns at the store for protection against robbery. So where there's guns? There's bullets and cartridges. I don't think the fact that they found a paper bag with cartridges in it, gun boxes, and bullets means that Tommy's a murderer or that anybody that is connected to the store that owns the store is connected to this crime. So I think a lot of stuff about this bag, this paper bag, is really overinflated, but I think it gets a lot of attention because of the completely shoddy work that the FBI did in relation to the fingerprints on the bag. And it just shows you what they do with the fingerprint evidence in general. I mean, just the mere fact it is bag in bag and they can't tell which bag had a palm print on it. I just, I have a hard time referring to this FBI employee as an expert. So that's what we're going to call her from now on. She's going to be the FBI employee because the way she acts, the way she handled this situation, the way she handled this evidence is not what an expert would do. The FBI employee was unable to find any usable prints off of any of the guns. And, um, you know, the oil on the guns, because you oil a gun to treat it, you know, treat it, to um, take it, maintain it. It keeps it from getting rusty and, you know, causing all types of problems with the mechanisms. Okay, so the oil on these guns, they can lead to, you know, you leave prints on them, but oftentimes they're smudged, you know, they're smeared more than they are 
full-on prints, but two latent partial fingerprints were recovered. Two partial fingerprints were recovered on weapons. And latent prints are prints that can't be seen with a naked eye, but you use chemicals and they enhance the prints and then you can see them. The FBI determined that these prints were of no value for identification and all photographs of these prints were destroyed because they didn't match Tommy's prints. They compared the, the partial print to Tommy's prints and there was not enough points in areas where you could match them to be able to tell if it's an exact match. So they threw them away. Instead of maintaining those prints, you never know what the future is going to hold. You never know if Tommy's going to always be the only suspect. You know, they may want to charge somebody later. I don't even know if they compared those partial fingerprints on the guns to Edward Williams, to Charlie Mays, to Felton Thomas. And in fact, I'm almost 100% sure they didn't compare them to Felton Thomas because I got a really strong impression that I don't think they ever took his prints for comparison at all, which is astonishing because Felton Thomas claimed that he was never inside the furniture store. And if they would have found one single fingerprint of Felton Thomas inside that store, it would have blown his whole story apart. But they never looked to find any. There's lots and lots of unidentified prints in that store. And I can understand why. It's a business open to the public. There's going to be tons of prints. But none of them were ever compared to Felton Thomas. At least that's what I think. Because I don't think they collected his prints. So, you know, no way to compare them. Now, throwing away partial prints. That's not the practice of the FBI. All evidence should be retained unless the FBI is instructed to destroy evidence by the party that supplied the evidence. Usually the FBI does not take it upon itself to destroy evidence that has been handed over to them by another investigative agency. This wasn't evidence that was collected by the FBI and the FBI is testing their own evidence and something related to what you know FBI is pursuing. This is a state agency giving evidence to the FBI to test and the FBI is saying, yeah, this doesn't have any value and just shit canning it. And I'm really going to take a strong stance in every case that we deal with, every case we talk about, I'm really anti-shit canning evidence because you just don't know what the future holds. And obviously this lady doesn't even know what the present holds because that print, she said it had no evidentiary value. She's completely wrong because that print does have evidentiary value. You could use it to eliminate somebody. It's only a partial print. Didn't have enough specific points where you could compare and make a match. But let's just say your suspect has a scar going through their finger and it alters your fingerprint, or they have some type of, um, just an odd deviation in their fingerprint, like a, a different type of swirl, just something that doesn't show up in that print. So you know, oh, wait, look at that point, that point right there doesn't match. Then you know that person can be excluded. So while those prints, because they were partial and didn't have enough identifying marks in them, you couldn't make a match to somebody, somebody could be definitely excluded as having made that print. And in fact, the defense never got to look at those fingerprints and have an independent expert, an expert, not an employee, look at those prints and determine whether or not they were a match or whether or not Tommy could have been excluded from having made that print because she wasn't looking for that. I don't even think she looked for it for exclusionary purposes. I get the feeling that once she saw there were not enough points there where she could make a match, she just threw it out. I don't know if she even looked for exclusion. I could be wrong about that. It very much from her testimony, it seemed like she didn't see the value in the prints once she just determined that they were just partials. So now I said, it's not the FBI's practice to destroy prints or to destroy evidence, especially when it's supplied by another agency. So it raises the question, why did the FBI destroy these partial fingerprints that came off of the guns? This evidence is gone forever. 
And I can't tell from the testimony if she was only looking for Tommy's prints on the gun. I mean, I'd be really curious to see if there were any other prints on the gun, especially in the case of Will Williams and Thomas, the guns actually registered to Tommy, meaning not the Orange Grove guns. The Orange Grove guns, according to Felton Thomas, you could expect to see Felton Thomas's and Charlie Mays' fingerprints on them. But like I said, they claim that those guns were wiped clean. Now, the partial prints, we don't know what guns those partial prints came from. But say they came from Tommy's gun, the one he kept in his vehicle. I would be very interested to find out if Charlie Mays or Felton Thomas's prints were on a gun that was actually owned by Tommy, not those ones that were bought by Edward Williams' friends. If they have Felton Thomas's print on a gun owned by Tommy or Charlie Mays' print on a gun owned by Tommy, I think that really changes the scene and changes what could have happened and changes their understanding of the events of that night. And I just don't know if anybody looked to ever see if it could have been their prints. And that's very important. The defense is, oh gosh, they're absolutely irate that the prints were destroyed because while they were not enough distinguishing points of the prints to make an identification, they could still be used to exclude people as a match to the print. And that was never done. The FBI looked for a match to Tommy's prints on the gun, but they never looked to exclude Tommy as a match to the prints on the guns. And then they destroyed the evidence. So it would be not available for the defense to examine. It's truly unforgivable. When the defense presents its case, they actually call a witness who is a fingerprint expert, an actual expert, not a fingerprint employee, ugh, that explains to the jury the importance of so-called partial prints. And this expert explains that partial prints can be used for elimination purposes to prove that the print, print, excuse me, to prove that the print doesn't match somebody. If there's a strong notable detail in the partial print that doesn't correspond to the comparison print, then it's not a match. And this has evidentiary value. It's why we don't throw away photographs and documentation related to partial prints. When I say we here, I'm using the royal we, which means you, me, King Charles, and obviously not that employee at the FBI because she throws away whatever else she wants to. The expert the defense calls does testify that it is not his personal practice to destroy partial prints, and he doesn't consider it to be a good practice. And I'm going to have to agree with the defense expert. I say, let's not destroy evidence. Even if partial prints couldn't be used to eliminate suspects, I say keep them. We don't know where technology will take us in the future. You don't know where the evidence will take us in the future. There could be a new suspect someday. There could be technology that changes. So just hang on to the partial prints. Just as a general rule, I'm pretty, pretty against shit canning evidence because you just don't know when you might need it later. Just think of this. Think of all the blood evidence before we ever knew what DNA was. Think of all of that was destroyed after it was typed because that was a technology available at the time. The experts were, well, we did what we could. Then we set the evidence on fire. Well, think of all the murderous assholes that would be out there enjoying their dotage free because we didn't know DNA was around the corner. And even once we got DNA and we couldn't make matches, people didn't know for decades that using genealogical research to connect people through DNA, that's another advance. We keep moving. And I know most of these movements I'm talking about right here, they're about DNA, but you never know what's going to change. So keep it. And even beyond that, when she claims it had no evidentiary value, that's an outright lie. Or no, maybe she thought that. That's an outright ignorance, I guess then, because it did have value. I just wonder so much if there was a reason why that was destroyed was because it could have been a match or it could have, maybe not necessarily so much a match, but it could have excluded somebody. And the state wasn't interested in that ever coming out. Now, you will see lots of sources that describe the guns as having been wiped clean of prints. And I, from what I have read, I seem to think that they are talking about the guns that were purchased by Frank Smith, the uh, quote unquote Orange Grove guns. That's what I think about when they say they've been wiped clean of prints. Now, if that is true, it really makes Felton Thomas's story about shooting guns at the Orange Grove 
extra ridiculous. Why would Tommy go to such lengths to get Shirley and Felton Thomas's prints on those guns just to wipe them clean? It sounds silly. Now, I know people have said maybe Tommy panicked and he wiped the gun's prints off them because once Felton Thomas left, he's like, oh no, I, I was going to implicate this guy, but now he's not here. I've got to get this prints off the gun. But even if Tommy had done that, just think about it this way. The other person he's supposedly trying to frame for these murders is Charlie Mays, and he's lying in there dead on the floor. The easiest way in the world to get somebody's prints on a gun, somebody you plan on killing, is just wait till they're dead. All he had to do was walk over to Charlie Mays, put his hands around the, he's deceased, put his dead hand around that gun, and he's got his prints all over it. And he could even wipe them clean from the orange grove. And then do that with his hand after he's deceased. And he'd have his prints on the gun. In fact, if Tommy, from the beginning, was going to kill Felton Thomas and Charlie Mays, why do the rigmarole of going to the Orange Grove to get the prints on the guns? You're going to kill the men, according to the state. Kill them and get their prints on the gun after they're dead. Tommy is supposed to be a mastermind. They tried to frame all these people, went back and forth, had all these guns from coming from all these different directions, all these moving parts. But he couldn't come up with oh, you don't need to go to an orange grove and have these people test out the guns. You'll wait till they're dead and you put the damn gun in their dead hand. That's what you do. That's how people that kill somebody make it look like a suicide. You don't have to be a criminal genius to come up with this thing. You just have to be like a, I don't even know, like what's the opposite of a criminal genius or a criminal mastermind? Okay, you gotta be a criminal average student <laughs> and you come up with, you use the deceased person's hand. Okay. And I also like to think about this because the, the things of the fingerprints and the guns and the, the orange grove thing just doesn't sit well with me. If Tommy had managed to get Shirley Mays and Felton Thomas's prints on those guns and they were registered in someone else's name, guns bought by Frank Smith that are tested out at the orange grove. So he's having them get prints on guns that are not owned by himself. This is what Tommy's doing. He's the whole idea is Tommy takes these men to the Orange Grove to get their prints on the guns that were purchased by Frank Smith. He knows those guns are not tied to him. If that is the case, if Tommy has managed to get these men's prints on these guns that are not owned to him, why at any point during that night did Tommy, according to the state, use his own weapons to kill people? Because both his mother-in-law and father-in-law are shot with the gun that Tommy owns that he keeps in the dashboard of his truck. If Tommy's trying to pin this on other people and use untraceable guns, why would Tommy have used a gun that was registered to him? And those were the first murders of the night. So I don't think at that point you can say he's panicking. I think it just didn't happen. Because at that point, it's the beginning of the night. He's just starting with the plan. There's nothing to panic about. According to Thomas... When they went to the Orange Grove, Tommy had three guns on him. But according to Thomas, they also only tested two guns at the Orange Grove. Why not test all three? I mean, really get those prints on all three. And I don't know what this third gun is because there's two guns bought by Frank Smith. Oh, gosh, I might be wrong about what they were. I know whether they were the more inexpensive guns. There were two guns that were identical. There were, you know, a lower price range guns. And there's a third gun. And we, I don't know. I don't know if it's established anywhere which gun that third gun is. But if he's got... And they only shoot two of the guns at the Orange Grove. But if Tommy has these two guys here, why not get their prints on all three guns? Why would he only want their prints on certain guns? I'm not, I'm not quite getting that. Now, here's what I kind of think this Orange Grove story is. Because to me, with the understanding that if you're going to be killing these people, you get their fingerprints on the guns after they're dead. And I think Tommy's smart enough to come up with that. Because I think anybody is. There's another reason that's important. Why would that Orange Grove story have to come about? What's the point of that story? And I think the point of that story is to explain 
Felton Thomas and Charlie May's fingerprints being in Curtis Flowers' car. While the car seemed like it was wiped of prints, you know, without the Orange Grove story, there is no reason for the car to be wiped clean. And that's kind of suspicious that the car is wiped clean. So if that car is completely wiped clean of prints, that in itself should raise some suspicion. Now we know it wasn't completely wiped clean. There are some prints on the car. Um, I think on the, the fender um, and some other spots. But So there was an attempt to wipe down the car, but it wasn't completely successful. But even I think if you don't got prints on the inside of the car, doesn't that look weird? Because I'll tell you what, you go in my truck and you're going to find fingerprints. Also some dog prints. Also some dog mouth prints on windows. So that's what you're going to find. Also fingerprints of the widow where people, the girls write things in the back. But you're going to find a lot of prints in my vehicles, what I'm trying to tell you. So if you get a vehicle where it's completely wiped down, that looks weird. But also what if when they wiped it down, you know, the Charlie Mays or one of Felton Thomas's prints are missed. They have to have a reason. Felton Thomas has to have a reason why his fingerprints would be on Curtis Dunaway's car. And I think that was the point of the Orange Grove story, really. I think it's a lot less about framing Tommy to get the idea that he wanted to get their prints on the guns, because that's just stupid. You just get the dead people's prints on the guns. I think that's more about what if they had found Felton Thomas's fingerprint in that car and he hadn't told the Orange Grove story. But then again, I think it's very interesting that I don't think they ever took Felton Thomas's prints. So they wouldn't have been looking to find his prints in the car. Once he started talking, they just started buying what he was selling and there was really no investigation to see if what he was saying was accurate, which is um weird. Okay, so now the prosecution is really getting to the heart of their case when Felton Thomas takes the stand. Thomas identifies Tommy as the man he saw that Christmas Eve. Now, Tommy says he never saw Felton Thomas before he saw him at the preliminary hearing. But right here, Thomas is identifying Tommy. I mean, it's easy to identify somebody in court. It's the defendant, so I don't find this all that powerful. Felton Thomas describes the car that Tommy drove that night as looking like a Cadillac. He goes over his general story about meeting Tommy with Charlie behind the store the Orange Grove story the, about Tommy trying to break into the store and how he himself, Felton Thomas, became uncomfortable and left and Charlie stayed with Tommy. On cross-examination, the defense had Thomas describe the path that they drove to the store that night. The defense felt that they had a real triumph when the route that Thomas laid out required them to drive through a concrete wall. Because see, this is a major problem. The route described by Thomas required them to drive through a three-foot-high concrete wall. It calls into question his knowledge even of the layout of the parking lot of the furniture store because he's unsure of where things are and the path that you'd have to take to get to the back. So now there is a legitimate problem with the facts and Thomas's story is not lining up. Thomas didn't actually know the layout outside the store and that's important because he spent time outside the store. Remember, he never goes into the store. They're in the back parking lot. They're negotiating all this crap, turn off the power from outside, all that him and hong about whether or not he's going to go and actually go in. This all happens. And he even spends time waiting outside the store, waiting for Tommy when he's waiting alone with Charlie. I mean, according to his story, he spent a bit of time in that parking lot and he doesn't seem to be familiar with it. Now, I know it's just one point. But I feel like when there's one thing like that, you can call into question and you should look at the other statements being made by that individual and look at whether or not they are actually factual and true as well. When you find one thing that's wrong, I say look closer and see what else you can find that's wrong. Now, Edward Williams is up next and by all accounts, he gives a good impression and testifies well for the prosecution, outlining his story about meeting Tommy at his house and then driving to the store with Tommy. And finally, how Tommy tried to lure him to the store and tried to shoot him and how he fled to the KFC across the street to unsuccessfully try to call the police. 
On cross, the defense didn't aggressively challenge Williams. The defense didn't want to be seen as attacking Williams. They worried about how that would look to the black jurors. Now, one thing did change from Edward Williams' deposition to his testimony at the trial. At the trial, Edward Williams testified that Tommy actually held the gun to his chest when he pulled the trigger. In his earlier accounts, there was more distance between him and Tommy. And this would have been a great point for the defense to pounce on. I mean, shouldn't one remember whether someone held a gun right up against their body or stood several feet away when they tried to kill you? Testimony about the distance the shooter was from you shouldn't change from several feet away to the gun was right up against your body. Well, it shouldn't change if you're testifying to events that actually happened and you're telling the truth. It seems like something somebody would remember. I just don't understand why the defense treated Edward Williams with kid gloves. His story about that night was ridiculous and no one ever pushed him on it. And the defense lawyers always say that Williams, you know, he testified so well for the prosecution. And I just have a hard time believing this. I've seen interviews with Edward Williams and he just seems so smarmy. I think the main thing was they really didn't want to be seen arguing with this man because of race issues. And if they were going to beat witnesses like this because of they were black and they were worried about the jury would think, then honest to God, Tommy's team should have got a black lawyer on it. Didn't they want to split the uh, retainer? Because I think I see them doing a lot of the decisions where they don't want to upset black jurors. And I get that. I get that. But another way to have that not happen is you get a black lawyer questioning the black witness that you want, you know, a little aggression to come out on the part of the lawyer. You Maybe this gets a little heated and you don't want it to be a white guy doing it. I mean, that's how you solve this. You don't then not go with the witness and question him and poke holes in his story. I mean, I, I'm really bothered by this, that they keep, that the defense always keeps saying about how Edward Williams testified so well, because everything he says, I see lies. I see inconsistencies. I can see things that don't make logical sense. And then the way they handle that, I think everybody knew that. I think in the seventies, people knew that. If it's going to be a race thing and it's going to be confrontational, then you have both the person being questioned and the person asking the questions. You have them be the same race. It's common sense. And it really bothers me because I know there were excellent black lawyers in Florida. But I'll tell you what it would have done. And this is, I don't like saying this, but it would have cut into the money the firm got because they would have had to bring in somebody outside. But I think that's what you need to do in situations like this. It's too important to let something like this go and to let this man, his testimony go largely. I mean, maybe largely is too harsh, but not challenged to the way it should have been. I mean, everything he's, you have a man that his friend bought two of the murder weapons. He's in possession of the main murder weapon after the murders. His truck is broken down in the back of the crime scene. And he drove one of the people that was shot that night to the crime scene. And no one's acting like he should be a suspect. I can't. I, I can't. That's beyond. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people should be embarrassed. I mean, the jury should be embarrassed because of what they did. And when you hear them talk about it, all except for two jurors, there's two jurors that, you know, don't like what happened. But I mean, the smugness, ugh, it's very irritating. It's, I'm sorry, I have a sore spot with smugness, but it's just so many people got so many things wrong. You know, the prosecution, the investigators, I think the defense with this. And that's what I said. I think the defense tried, but I think, I think they thought there was so little evidence against him that these things weren't going to be needed. And they took a gamble in not bringing in a black lawyer to question and handle part of the case and handle probably Edward Williams and Felton Thomas testimony and maybe a couple of white people. So it you know, doesn't look weird. And they took a gamble on not doing that. And they were gambling with a man's life. And that's, you don't do that.
I mean, I don't think you should. Now, I agree with the defense team because the defense has always said that they felt that Edward Williams seemed scared. And I agree. I think he was scared. But he had one of the murder weapons after the murders. His friend purchased the other two murder weapons. Williams had connections to three of the murder weapons. And his truck was stuck at the crime scene. Yes, of course he was scared. But I don't think he was scared because of Tommy pulling a gun on him. I don't think he was scared because he showed up there and there were all these dead bodies. I don't think that's why he was frightened. I think he was scared. I think he was scared and frightened that everyone would see through his bullshit story and he would be implicated in the murders. The mere fact that the police bought his ridiculous story makes me think that there could have been police involvement in the murders. The police just seemed too eager to believe an unbelievable story. The prosecution called the cashier that let Williams use the phone at the KFC. Now, he was the best choice for the prosecution because the cashier was less certain of the time that Williams arrived at the KFC than the other witnesses who all saw, everyone else at the KFC saw Williams arrive at the KFC after nine, which is important because by Williams' own timeline, he should arrive at the KFC at 8.45. Nine o'clock, they're closed. He arrived after closing and you have customers that saw him, you have KFC employees that saw him multiple people saw him arrive after nine. Now the cashier who's busy working, he's, you know, getting those last batch of chicken in for the night and getting all these people that had orders and getting them taken care of, getting out of the restaurant and getting the place closed. He couldn't pinpoint the time exactly. So the defense, what, and that's why the prosecution picked him, but the defense was able to elicit testimony from the cashier that Williams was wearing a brown jacket or sweater. Keep in mind that basically everyone at the KFC saw Williams wearing a brown on brown outfit. The man was dressed like a fucking turd, but the clothes that Williams turned over to the police that he claimed he was wearing that night were black pants, a green cardigan, and brand new high-heeled dress boots with the unscuffed price tag still on the underside, you know, the sole of the shoe. So even in their ideal witness, the best witness they can get out of that KFC that night, yeah, he's unsure of the time. That's all. Like, that's the only good thing they got from him. He's unsure of the time that Williams arrived. But he also, he still identifies Edward Williams as wearing a different outfit than the one he turned over to the police. That means every single person in that KFC saw him wearing different clothes, but the police just accepted the black pants and the green cardigan is what he was wearing that night. And the brand, you gotta see these boots, honest to God. They're like a three inch heel. I mean, it's like he got them out of the Prince collection. And God, I do love Prince. And I would wear his boots, but I wouldn't wear them if I was planning on delivering furniture. Yeah. That's not the shoe for lifting. Let's put it that way. Now, this is when, okay, I, I, I get so angry. I've been angry all last episode and I'm angry this episode. And it's because of the, what the prosecution does and these witnesses that I just feel like, I feel like a lot of people aren't honest. Now, the third week of the trial opens with Ray Usury. He's the owner of a bait and tackle slash gun shop. And he sold Tommy three guns that were at the crime scene. Two were at the crime scene. One of them was the one that Edward Williams turned over to the police the next day. It was a Securities 38, a Smith & Wesson 38, and a Colt 357. Even though Ray did not handle the sale. He's still the person that's called to testify, not the cashier that handled the sale. They called the owner. He did not handle the sale. A clerk at the store had handled the transaction. But Ray claimed that the date of the sale was January 9th, 1975. Hey, that's my brother's birthday. Okay, so remember those two gum boxes that were found inside the paper bag in the cabinet in the store, along with some bullets and empty cartridges? and the blue towel from Curtis Dunaway's car. Oh wait, was the blue towel in the bag or was the blue towel just in the cabinet? I'm gonna have to go back and verify that for us because the blue towel was the most damning evidence that they have against Tommy, in my opinion. The towel was from Curtis's car. He kept it to cover a hole in the upholstery. Why would that be in the cabinet? When they exchanged cars that night, Curtis and Tommy, the towel was still 
in Curtis's car. So to me, that, that is a problem that the towel somehow ends up in that cabinet. I just have to find out whether or not it was actually in the bag or just in the cabinet. But anyway, I will, because this is where the testimony gets absolutely insane because Ray has one hell of a memory. Well, well, he does if you believe this ridiculous pile of bullshit story about the gun boxes that he tells on the witness stand while under oath. Okay, well, at the gun shop, apparently, if someone buys a gun but doesn't want the box that came in, the store keeps those unwanted boxes in case someone else buying a gun wants a box, which is, sounds kind of stupid to me because I would believe that every gun arrives at the store from the wholesaler in a box. So why would they need to keep boxes that people don't want around in case somebody else is buying a gun wants a box? Wouldn't the gun you're buying have a box itself? I mean, unless they are, unless they do other things where it's like used guns, but also I don't think Tommy would buy used guns. So that's going to come up important here. He seems like a buy new type of guy. I mean, he's a millionaire. He doesn't need to buy used. He doesn't have to shop at Goodwill and Salvation Army with me, you know? It'd be nice to have someone to carpool with, but he doesn't have to do that. He seems like a guy's picky about things. I wouldn't think he'd buy use. But to me, I would think every brand new gun coming in from a wholesaler, manufacturer, wherever the hell you're getting them from to be sold at the old bait and tackle slash gun shop, they come in a box. So I don't see why they would keep the boxes that people don't want. And I don't even know why you'd ask if people want the box. Wouldn't you just assume they want the box? Like when I, I just think that's weird. You're selling it. It's in a box. Why'd you like, do you, do you not want this box? Do you ever plan on putting this gun down? storing it anywhere or just i don't know what <laughs> to me it just seems kind of weird just give the damn people the box but apparently this ray he says these people say they don't want the box and they just pile them up in a pile behind the registers and then people want a box they can take a box it kind of reminds me of buying new shoes when i was a kid and you just had to wear them out of the store with your old shoes in the box i guess in florida you know people might be like that with guns no i don't need a box i'll just carry it out of the store i mean it's kind of weird. But anyway, so they have all these random discarded boxes around the store, according to the owner. Now, because Tommy wanted boxes for his guns, and apparently, even though Tommy always buys high-end guns, there were no boxes for his guns. And the clerk finds two boxes for Tommy, and this store owner, who wasn't even waiting on Tommy, remembers exactly what boxes the clerk used from over a year and a half ago that he just pulled out of a random pile of boxes. This guy remembers which two boxes this clerk used to put Tommy's guns in that day. Does anyone really believe this guy? If he is telling the truth, and maybe he is, but he is being wasted, completely wasted as a bait tackle slash gun shop owner. With a memory like this, this man could do anything, anything. I mean, I know he's a business owner, but I mean, to have a mind like that, the sky's the limit, right? Also, I would love to know if Tommy's lawyers, his investigators, if they thoroughly look throughout his home for the actual boxes that he purchased his guns in, I'd be curious to see if, to me, Tommy seems like a guy that would keep a box. You know, he seems very organized. But also, if the boxes were kept at the store, very likely, well, I guess if they were at the store, they probably would have planted those in the bag instead of planting these wacky boxes. I was going to say they could have just been discarded, but I mean, I'm just, I would always wonder if, if at any point anybody looked for the actual boxes that were associated with the guns that Tommy owned instead of these random ass boxes found in the paper bag, which I just think they mean so little because I don't think these are the boxes that Tommy got when he bought his guns. I don't think the guy from the bait tackle gun shop, I don't think he can remember what random boxes he gave to somebody a year and a half ago when they purchased a gun. I mean, think about this. It's insane. Because every box has the serial number of the gun on the outside of the box and the make and, you know, the model of the gun. You know, like, I just, 
Yeah, it just is too bizarre to me. Now, anyway, because the boxes have the make and the, everything about the, the serial number, they can tell when these boxes, um, when people had purchased the guns that originally went into those boxes. Okay, the guns that originally came in those boxes that were given to Tommy, those guns were purchased in 1972 and December of 1974. Now, the firearms transaction slips for Tommy's purchase of his guns were dated October 31st, 1974. Yeah, did you catch that? Because I know you did. The box that they claim they gave to Tommy as a store for the guns he purchased, the guns he purchased on October 31st, Halloween, 1974, the box they used, which should have been come from a gun that had already been sold, that gun wasn't sold till two months later in December. Yeah, you heard me. Tommy purchased his guns before the person who bought the gun that had come in the box that Tommy was given. Sounds like a lot of bullshit. Ray claimed that it was a clerk's error and that Tommy had actually bought the guns on January 9th, 1975. And that sounds laughable. That's not an error. I cannot accept that the clerk was off by that much. Wrong month, wrong day, wrong year. And I don't really think people mistakenly believe that it's Halloween. Honest to God. Have you ever accidentally got the date wrong and you accidentally thought it was Christmas? No, that's why it makes that so much slower to me. If one part of the thing had been the same, the month had been the same, or the date had been the same, but every single number, month, day, year, each one of them is wrong. And on top of that, the date of the confusion is, he's, you have to accept that somebody mistakenly thought that it was Halloween, when in fact it was January. It's beyond words. I mean, I, I feel like that witness after cross-examination, you didn't do your job as a defense attorney if that man wasn't leaving the stand in tears. And I don't know if that's what happened because I think you got to go hard on something like that. The man is telling a story that is beyond questionable and not even logical. You got to go after that. I don't know if everybody was being too much of a gentleman to call people out on their bullshit. I mean, I said before Tommy might needed a black lawyer. I wonder if he needed a lady lawyer too. Jeez. Because you got to go after that. So next, the prosecution called Frank Smith, the man who was the registered owner of two RG-22 revolvers. He claimed that he purchased the guns for Tommy. Frank Smith was a friend of Edward Williams, and he was a former Air Force MP, which strikes me as weird because he's buying guns for somebody else, which is illegal. I mean, right there on the form, when you go to buy a gun, it asks, are you buying this weapon for somebody else? And if you answer yes, this sale can't go through because it is illegal to buy a firearm for somebody else. Now, you can buy a gift of a firearm, but that you have to acknowledge that and there's a way to take care of that. And that was not done here. So he's saying, Tommy said he wanted hot guns, so I went and bought these. So he's saying, I bought guns for him with the intent of selling them to Tommy. He's admitting on the stand that he illegally bought weapons, basically. And the prosecution never challenges them on that. I don't think the defense ever asks if this guy's going to be charged with this because it is a criminal offense. I mean, I don't think it's one that's highly prosecuted, um, but it's a crime. And I'll tell you what, I talked to a guy at the <laughs> NRA about this and he told me this is the number one way for people that are convicted felons to get guns is they ask somebody else to buy it for them because they can't legally purchase a, a firearm. And he's just like, you know, if someone ever asks you to do this, don't because it's going to come back on you eventually because when the gun is caught up in a crime you're the owner of it and you committed a crime by buying it for this person that it can't legally buy a gun so you know shit rolls downhill it's going to roll right onto you i mean you might be able to implicate it the person you sold it to but i mean still you're in a in a mess of shit that you don't need to be in because think about it be a good person why can't this person buy the gun themselves 
you know, Frank Smith. Everyone wants to act like Frank Smith's this great guy. Why wouldn't he think? Why the hell do you want hot guns? He's more interested in making a hundred bucks than questioning why somebody would want weapons that can't be traced back to them. I mean, have some sense of self-preservation. Don't tie yourself to that type of mess. But anyway, I just think it's weird that he's an MP and he did this because that's military police. So, you know what I mean? Like, you'd think they'd be like, nah, that's super shady, super illegal, not doing that. But he, like, seems like he's comfortable with it, I guess. Anyway, here's what Smith's testimony basically is. He testifies that Edward Williams connected him with Tommy and Frank admits that he never actually met Tommy. They just spoke on the phone where he said, he spoke on the phone with Tommy and Tommy said he wanted two hot pistols. And based solely on this phone call, a single phone call, Frank went out and bought two guns with his own money. Frank explained that the whole arrangement to purchase these guns had been initiated by Edward Williams. Apparently, Williams had gone to Frank's place and placed a phone call to Tommy and handed the phone to Frank, and Frank spoke to a man who he was told was Tommy Ziegler. Frank had never seen or spoke to Tommy before this. He admitted that he did not know if he was actually talking to Tommy. And I really wish the police had checked phone records to see if a call was placed to a phone number associated with Tommy in June of 1975 when the guns were bought. But of course, they didn't do that. But that would have shored up his story. If you see a call from Frank Smith's place going to the furniture store or going to Tommy's house, that makes him seem believable. So I want to think this is one of those things. Did they check the records and they didn't find that? And that's why they don't mention it? Because if they found it, I feel like they'd be like, look, see, we got the evidence of the phone call. But they don't have evidence of the phone call. But also, did the defense check the records? I just feel like, I just feel like the defense, I, I don't know. I feel like they dropped the ball because they thought the state had no case. But you can't drop the ball when it's a death penalty quadruple murder case, for gosh sakes. Mary Ellen Stewart was another witness for the prosecution, and she was a customer of the furniture store, and she had some payment problems in the past. In fact, Curtis Dunaway and Tommy had tried to repossess some furniture, but Mary, she fought back, arguing with them over whether or not that was the furniture in question that she hadn't paid for, or, or what was the right item. So I think she got away with, uh, without having the furniture repossessed. I don't know if she got away with not ever paying for it. Who the hell knows about that? But anyway, she testified that Tommy had actually asked her about obtaining illegal guns. You know, it makes logical sense. So Tommy wants to get illegal guns. Who's he going to go to? Some lady that can't pay for her furniture properly. I mean, she seems like she's not on the up and up, right? And he asks about her son-in-law, who was actually Frank Smith, the man I just talked about. And Mary was also the friend that Edward Williams had sought out after leaving the KFC. And it was with Mary that Williams eventually went to the police. Remember, after he goes to the KFC, Edward Williams meets those young ladies that he's familiar with, and he has them drive that him to where his Camaro's at the garage. See, Edward Williams has two cars, and neither of them are working very good. He's got the truck broke down at a murder scene across the street at the Ziegler store, and he's got his Camaro in the uh, garage. But his Camaro starts, and he can drive it away. I'd also love to say, I love how large Edward Williams is living. You know, he didn't have money to put a deposit down on his apartment. His truck ain't running properly, but he's got, and he's got a Camaro. And it's in the garage. Like, this guy can't get a deposit down on an apartment on his own. He has to have a friend call in a favor so his utilities can get turned on in his apartment. But he drives a Camaro. I don't trust his judgment with money, I'll say at the very least. Because in my opinion, Camaros are a pricey car. It's a luxury item. And when you can't turn on your electric in your apartment because you haven't been paying your bill, when you can't, you know, just get your truck fixed... When problems are going wrong with it, when you can't put the deposit down on your apartment yourself, I think you don't get the second car that's a Camaro. But that's just me. And everybody else just about. But anyway, and also I love Camaros. This is not a diss on Camaros. I just think it's a luxury item. So you wait till you're in like luxury position to get that. But anyway, so she's also the friend who after going to the KFC and getting his Camaro out of the garage, he goes to her apartment. 
and then eventually they go to the police together. Well, anyway, Mary testifies that while Williams was at her apartment, he made some phone calls. Then moments later, Mary testifies that Williams did not make any phone calls while he was at her apartment. So right there, to me, Mary sounds like a bit of what we call a liar. But she's an important witness. She supports Williams' claims that Tommy was looking for untraceable guns. Yeah, but she's a liar, so who gives a shit? She can't get it straight whether or not Edward Williams made phone calls from her apartment. Also, check phone records. That'd figure that out. But also, I, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, she's lying about something that's, I don't know if that's a major factor. Kind of is, because is he calling lawyers for advice? Is he calling trying to check police and see where he should go in and, and submit his clothing and, you know, tell a story? I mean, who's he calling at this point? You know, to me, it's, I, I think it's an important point that she should, you know, she should be held to accountability on whether or not, did he call? Didn't he call? She doesn't seem to know. So did Tommy ask for illegal guns? I don't trust her because she doesn't even know if a guy that just claims that someone tried to kill him, she doesn't even know if he called anyone when he stopped by her place. She like doesn't really have a great accountability of what they were doing there before they went to the police. Now, it's after the trial that the defense realized that Mary wasn't just a friend or neighbor of Williams, which is how she described herself. Because decades later, Tommy's investigator, this lady is just amazing. She finds a mortgage deed signed by Edward Williams and Mary Ellen Stewart as husband and wife from 1973, two years before the murders. I think it's inexcusable that the defense team had not found that, had not made the connection that these two had. They weren't just a friend. They weren't just neighbors. I mean, the defense needed to dig on this shit. She wasn't live near him. Why would he go all the way? It was a long drive. Why would he go all the way to her place to, you know, before he goes to the police? It has to be because there's a bigger connection between the two of them there. But also, I just, you know, I was trying to rip on the defense a little bit. I'm going to walk back on that just a slight bit because they were so time crunched that I don't think they could do all the things that they needed to do. And, you know, they begged for more time. So, but this is something, this is a connection that should have been made ideally before trial. And then you can show why this woman, level of bias that she has. Because also, show she's a liar. Because they signed the deed as husband and wife. There's no marriage certificate to back that up. And if they're not married and they wrote it on a mortgage deed to get a loan, a, like a loan application situation, that means they're lying to get a loan, which is a crime. And you could paint her as a liar right there on the stand and eliminate the value of her testimony. But they didn't find this out till after trial, like so many other things. They didn't find out till after trial. So Williams actually signed the property over to Mary in 1975 for $10. A simple property search, honest to God, in uh, Edward Williams' name. And, you know, recent transactions, this would have showed up. And that's just too damn bad. Then an affidavit from 1989 was found where Mary admitted that she and Williams were never married. And she had lied about being married to Williams so she could get a mortgage. So right there, she's admitting she's a liar. She lied on applications to get a mortgage. Was she prosecuted for that? Because that's something you get prosecuted for. Because I know a guy that did that. Now, he did it big time. But he went to jail. Do you know why? It's a crime. I mean, he did it big time. Okay, I'm not going to lie. But still, like, it's like, to me, this is, I wouldn't lie about that. I guess I can't hold people to the same standards I hold myself. I learned that when I was 23. But it's like I'm learning it anew all the time. When I hear other people not doing these things, it makes me think they're not trustworthy. I don't give a shit that she's saying that Tommy Ziegler came to her looking for illegal weapons. Because why would he go to her? And second, she's a liar. She lied about the mortgage. She can't even remember. He made phone calls. He didn't make phone calls. Which is it, Mary? I mean, it's one of the two. But I just, I mean, once I start seeing anybody lies about small things, I really discredit the majority of their testimony 
and what other things they say. The fact is that Edward Williams and Mary, they hid the level of relationship they had when they were just friends, neighbors. I mean, clearly they weren't neighbors. They lived very far apart. It was a long drive. They were more than friends and they lied about that because they were hiding the motivation that she had to help him evade criminal charges. Everyone says, why would all these people lie? Why would she lie? Because she doesn't want to implicate her son-in-law, who is the legal owner of two of the murder weapons. I'm not saying he had anything to do with this, but the guns come back to him. So she's lying. Try to help Frank Smith. You know, Tommy was looking for those guns. Those aren't Frank's guns. Frank didn't buy those guns for Edward Williams. I think she might be lying to protect Edward Williams because he seems very shady in a lot of these situations. Things keep always coming back to him and he's like I don't know like a husband figure to her I'd have to say because he's willing to put that on a mortgage deed so once you do that I mean you're kind of close I think uh, more than a neighbor I'll tell you that much and more than your regular friend so there's motivation to lie now I'm not saying she is lying one of the times that she testified about the phone calls whether or not Edward Williams made any phone calls before he went into the police at her apartment one of those times she's lying because she first she, you know one time she says he didn't make any phone calls and one time she says he did so one of those statements has to be a lie but more importantly is the statement about Tommy looking for illegal guns. Is that a lie? I don't know if it is, but I think that we have enough information to definitely question what she's saying. Because I just seriously, I just think if Tommy was looking for untraceable guns, would he really tell three people that he barely knew? Okay, wait, no. Would he really tell two people that he barely knew? Because Edward Williams, he knows well. But obviously, he's not to be trusted. But he tells Mary and Frank Smith, and he doesn't know these people hardly at all. I mean, you want untraceable guns. But you're letting three people know that you're looking for untraceable guns. I mean, that's really getting the word out on it. I mean, these people are going to come forward about this after the murders, which is what happened. So I don't think that Tommy, who's an intelligent man, would do that. If Tommy wants an untraceable gun, untraceable guns are this. It's a stolen gun. He has keys to people's apartments because he rents out all these apartments. You find out one of your tenants has a gun, you got a key to the apartment, you go in there, you steal the damn gun. And what you do when you get that gun out of that apartment, you take that serial number off the damn gun. It can be done. It's done all the time. It's not easy, but it can be done. I just don't think that you go and ask a stranger to get the gun for you. And then you ask basically an acquaintance to verify the reliability of the stranger. I mean, do you need a reference for this? Your reference for this is Edward Williams told you this guy would be good. I want illegal weapons. I'm going to commit a massive crime. Let me just, you know, sprinkle it about town and I'm looking for illegal gun. No, no one does that. Okay. Because I can't get past the part that these aren't untraceable guns because they keep calling them untraceable guns everywhere. And they're so traceable because they were bought at a pawn shop forms were filled out. <laughs> There's nothing untraceable about these guns. They just weren't by, bought by Tommy. I mean, I'm sorry. I just find that so, so ridiculous. Okay. After calling a few more witnesses, including an insurance agent that had issued one of the two policies on Eunice and Donald Fry, the prosecution rests its case. And this is where I will leave you on our next episode. The defense presents their case. <laughs>